everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, a very important theme of our program is uh, looking at the very, very important uh, contributions that our lifestyle choices make in terms of our health destiny. And today we're going to continue along that theme, looking at a book called How to Make Disease Disappear by Dr. Ranjan Chatterjee. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Chatterjee, our guest today. He is a medical doctor. He's double board certified, both family practice and also internal medicine. And he has an honorary board in immunology. Uh, he is the star of the BBC television program called Doctor in the House, which is now aired in over 70 countries. He uses functional medicine and lifestyle medicine as tools uh, to help reverse some of our most debilitating chronic illnesses. Uh, his book uh, was released in the United Kingdom earlier this year and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller, reached the number one spot uh, in England in, uh, on Amazon, and it's already become one of the most successful health books released in the past five years. Uh, he has been prescribing lifestyle medicine. In fact, uh, prescribing lifestyle medicine is a course uh, that he actually teaches at the Royal College of General Practitioners in London, uh, where he is actually teaching doctors how to apply the principles that we are going to talk about today that are so well described in his book. He has a podcast called Feel Better, Live More, and it's certainly very, very popular in the UK. Uh, his new book is called, again, How to Make Disease Disappear. Again, very much focused on looking at the science and also the implementation of very important lifestyle choices and looking at how they impact our health today and pave the way for a healthy future. So let's jump right into our interview. Well, Dr. Chatterjee, welcome to the program. Dr. Pilmosa, thank you so much for having me. Delighted. Uh, for our viewers, we were actually just getting to know each other ahead of the interview. And um, I, I was just, again, you know, talking about your wonderful new book. And in the intro, you probably didn't hear it, but I, I talked about how uh, once again, we're seeing information about the value of our lifestyle choices. So how does a guy like you get involved in looking at medicine from this perspective and then ends up writing a book and so much more? Yeah, David, I think that's a great question. I mean, for me, like many other doctors, I left medical school thinking that I'd learned all the tools that I needed to get my patients better. And for the first few years, that was seemingly working okay. You know, I was working in hospital medicine and acute medicine. You know, I was doing all the sort of things that you think you're going to do at medical school, running cardiac arrest teams and doing all the stuff <laughs> on hospital wards. But bit by bit, I started to get a slight disconnect that I can really see in hindsight. I did my exams to be uh, a specialist in uh, nephrology. So that's what, you know, I thought I was going to spend my career doing. But for me personally, I felt that actually... I didn't want to spend my whole career just seeing kidney issues. And so I made the rather unusual step to move into general practice, um, which I've got to say my father, who was a conventional MD, was a bit confused as to why I was leaving uh, being a specialist to move to, to becoming a generalist. But that's the move I made. And, you know, I really love my job as a generalist. But what I was finding more and more is that I was suppressing symptoms. I was you know, putting plasters on people's problems, but I wasn't actually getting to the root cause of their problems. You know, a few years back, I, I think at the end of one day, I thought, I, I looked through my clinic list, and I thought, I've only helped 20% of the people that have walked in today. You know, for 80%, I felt, yeah, I've referred them somewhere, maybe sent them for a test, maybe given them a prescription. But honestly, it was deeply unsatisfying and then for me, David, if I'm honest, the, the turning point came for me when um, my, my son was six months old. So, you know, my first child, my wife had breastfed for six months. Um, you know, we're a pretty health conscious family. We went off on holiday to France. Um, and really, it was a very, very scary time because what happened is that my son suddenly had a convulsion and he stopped moving. His arms went back. Uh, my wife called out to me. I went over. I, you know, I thought he might be choking. He had a little bit of a cold that day. I tried to turn him over, clear his airway. Nothing was happening. And then we rushed to the ER. And 
you know, you could see that the, the, the doctors, the nurses there in France were, were petrified because this is a six month old boy having a convulsion. But as you know, David, he had no fever. You know, it's very common for children at that age. Or, or I should say it's not uncommon for children uh, or, or babies to have a convulsion if they have a fever. But he had no fever. So he was transferred to a different hospital. He had two lumbar punctures. We were scared out of our wits, didn't know what was going on. Um, and then a few hours later, the doctors came back and said, you know, Dr. Chastity, your son's got a very, very low level of calcium. So his calcium level, his serum calcium um, was 0 0.97. The normal range is 2.2 to 2.6 in that hospital. So alarmingly low. And then a few hours further to that, they came back and said, and we've, we now know the reason why, he was extremely deficient in vitamin D. So, you know, acute medicine fixed him. They gave him an intravenous calcium infusion. Um, they gave him his vitamin D. But then that was it. And, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, the, the, the acute problem was dealt with. My son was okay. But then I started reading. I thought, you know, I had an incredible amount of guilt, David, if I'm honest, because, you know, as a qualified doctor, you know, certified in nephrology, certified in, in general practice with my immunology degree. I thought, how has my son nearly died from a preventable vitamin deficiency? And how did wow. I not know anything about that as a doctor? And I went on a journey, you know, I literally became obsessed with reading. I started off with vitamin D, its effect on the immune system. You know, my goal, David, was to get my son back to perfect health as if this had never happened. Because he had bad skin at the time, he had eczema, and I was thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe this is the reason why, or one of the contributing factors to, the, to, the, to, to his bad skin. Maybe it's because he's been deficient, maybe for the last six months, maybe in utero. You know, I, 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 was, I was confused, but that drove me on. And, and as I would research, David, I would find more and more information about the immune system, the gut microbiome, other nutrients, lifestyle, and basically all those principles I started applying with my son uh, to get him better. And I've got to tell you now, he's nearly eight years old, he's thriving, he doesn't have any eczema, he, he's, you know, he, he's doing great. Um, but then I started applying those same principles with me and my family, and we started feeling better, and we started feeling great. And then I started applying it with my patients, and for me, it was like the career I always wanted as a doctor. I really, I could start seeing why my patients were getting sick, how I could start to help them bit by bit, you know, repair what had happened, hopefully reverse what had happened, and start, you know, getting rid of their diseases sometimes if I could, but certainly optimizing their health. And, you know, for me, I, I, once you know this way of looking at the human body, you, you can't turn back really. Well, it, it really does present a very stark um, dichotomy between focusing on treating disease versus keeping people healthy. I mean, that really is the divergence that happens in the road. And, you know, truly uh, here in America, we talk about our health care plans and the health care uh, bills in Congress, et cetera, that have nothing to do with health. They have only to do uh, with acute treatment of illness and the treatment of chronic illness as well. And, you know, your experience, is, I have to say that probably at least 90% of the guests on this program begin, because I always ask, how did you get, you know, how's a good guy like you end up doing uh, alternative medicine uh, or something like that? And everybody has a personal event sure. in their own lives or in the loved one that really suddenly open their eyes, creates the the epiphany that what they were, the, how they were perceiving healthcare uh, was really very uh, obscure and uh, obscured by, you know, our education. It's great that you have the education that you have. Now you've leveraged that in yeah. a very, very powerful way. Uh, and, uh, and David, I would say that, you know, I think our medical school training is, is still very good, but it's very good for acute disease. And I, I, the way I see it is that the health landscape of the United States, the health landscape of the of the UK has dramatically changed over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, this the kind of medicine we're still taught in medical school, actually, I, I, I sort of think probably worked pretty well back then. You know, we were going to our medical doctor with acute problems. 
they kind of responded pretty well to this one pill for every ill model that we had. But we're trying to apply those same principles to what we're seeing today. And for me, I've gone on record as saying it's like applying 20th century thinking to 21st century problems. Um, and that's fundamentally what has to change. You know, as part of this journey, I was very, very lucky in that I got to showcase this style of medicine on um, a BBC One documentary series called uh, Doctor in the House, which, you know, is there, there's a few seasons of that here in the UK, and it's gone to 70 different countries around the world. And I went to live and stay, uh, live alongside families for about four to six weeks. And, you know, these are families with health problems who were already under their GP. Many of them were already under their specialist as well, yet they were still struggling with their health. And, you know, I managed to showcase to five million people in the UK each week that, you know, a condition like type 2 diabetes, for example, this is back in 2015, could be reversed. So, and, and I showed it in 30 days that that was that reversal or, you know, the technical term now here is to put it in remission. We could talk about that later. But, um, you know, I managed to show that this is possible in, in just a few weeks sometimes. But, you know, throughout the whole series, I've had um, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, insomnia, fibromyalgia. You know, I got a lady who had fibromyalgia pains for years who was under three or four different doctors, pain-free in six weeks. You know, the sort of thing that it was just incredible. Um, I feel incredibly lucky that I could showcase to the general public of this country and to many countries around the world that no matter what your condition is, doesn't matter what it is, right? by, by applying some simple changes to four core areas of your lifestyle, I think that we can improve things. And if we're lucky, we might be able to reverse them. Well, it's not that you think that. It's reality and yeah. the problem is that we are up against a huge medical industrial complex that controls the marketing and the media uh, to let people believe otherwise that basically you know eat whatever you want we've got a diabetes pill for you will gastric band uh, your stomach uh, we will uh, treat your diabetic neuropathy with uh, an anti-convulsant medication you name it and that is the path to which uh, generally people are directed that your choices don't mean anything let's live better through modern chemistry which I submit I've said before is really focusing on the smoke and ignoring the fire and you know the calling it fire is more than metaphorical because it really is fire in the, the strict definition of the term inflammation inflame uh, being the cornerstone of all of these you know, chronic degenerative conditions, whether we're talking about Alzheimer's or coronary artery disease or diabetes or even cancer. And the best way to reduce uh, inflammation are our lifestyle choices that you so uh, wonderfully detail in your book. And I, I want to get to that relax, eat, move, and sleep, how fundamentally these are so important in targeting that process inflammation, the cornerstone of pretty much those most common uh, dreaded diseases that plague the modern world. And I think, uh, you know, a moment ago you were just referring to how in the UK 30, 40 years ago, uh, the emphasis was possibly a little bit different. And I think that what happened is it became more Americanized uh, in terms of really the reliance upon uh, put through in terms of patients, but also the coin of medical commerce being the prescription pad. So. Let's start off with the four pillars of your book. In fact, that was the original name, wasn't it? Yeah, certainly the book has been sort of out in the UK for three months, and the name here is the Four Pillar Plan. Um, but the the US publisher didn't think that's that sort of name's going to fly in the US. And you know, really, they that the US publisher has taken the name from my TED talk, which is entitled "How to Make Disease Disappear," which is this whole idea that you know much of these chronic conditions that we're now we're now seeing have at their root this you know mismatch really between our genetic heritage and our, and our modern lifestyles and, well, and let me, I've let me learned... pick up on that for just yeah, a moment uh, two days ago I gave a, a, a two-hour talk at a group called paleo FX which are uh, you know it's an international conference of people who are in this paleo uh, idea that indeed there is this mismatch between our genome and our environment 
our choices and they're trying to create a lifestyle that emulates what our ancestors had in terms of targeting our genome. So how does the recommend, how do the recommendations in your book kind of really play upon the notion of epigenetics and the importance of valuing our Paleolithic ancestors? Yeah, in a, in a huge way, and that's a theme that I keep referring back to throughout the book. And, you know, let's take the relaxed pillar, which is the first pillar in the book, for example, and this is the whole stress piece. I feel that, you know, we're so busy in modern life. You know, many of us, we wake up, the first thing we do is grab our phones. We're, we're looking at our emails, we're looking at our social media, and that stream of noise will often not finish for us for the entire day, and often it's still going on just before we go to bed. I've got many patients where that is literally what their daily life is like. And if we think about that and we apply an evolutionary lens, that would never have happened before. We, we used to have moments of stillness. We used to have moments of quiet. Um, we weren't being stimulated continually from the minute we woke up to the minute we went to sleep. You know, and this whole thing about stress, you know, as you well know, David, our our bodies have, have you know, we, we've we've evolved this stress response, which is a very, it's a very important stress response. Stress is not necessarily bad. Okay, stress turns us into the best version of ourselves. So if we look back in our hunter-gatherer days, what did we need that stress response for? You know, a lion might be attacking us. So we therefore need a stress response. We need our cortisol levels to go up. We need our adrenaline levels to go up. And in that moment, we can run faster. You know, our brain thinks sharper. We switch off digestion. We pour sugar into our bloodstream to help us do all these things. That's great for half an hour or an hour or until that threat has passed and then everything returns back down to normal. The problem is those 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 things which help us in the short term become problematic if they're not turned off. And, you know, in the, in, the, in the ancient world, right, our stress came from an animal trying to attack us or some something trying to attack us. Now, I feel that our lives are attacking us. So we've got, you know, emails, to-do lists. We've got multiple things to do at work. We've got elderly parents we might be caring for. You know, two parents who are working, trying to juggle tight finances, trying to get the kids to school so that you can then rush off to work. And I've realized more and more that most of my patients, if I'd say the vast majority of my patients are in some ways chronically overstressed. And I've seen that, you know, a whole variety of different conditions. And there's a, there's a case study in the book of a lady I had with Crohn's disease, you know, a, you know, a nasty inflammatory bowel disease that she wasn't getting better on her immunosuppressant drugs from her gastroenterologist. She came uh, to see me. We worked a little bit on her diet, gave her some supplements. And, you know, things were getting better. But then she plateaued. It stopped. She went away. I'd not seen her for a few months. She comes back into my clinic. And she goes, look, I'm really, really frustrated. The drugs aren't working. You know, I'm still needing to use the bathroom about 20 times a day. And, you know, I could hear her speaking. And she was like a typical you know, a typical patient that I often see, a middle-aged woman who, you know, was was a fantastic wife. You know, she did everything for her husband. She was a great mother, but she had no time for herself. You know, seven days a week, she was doing things for other people. And I said, you know what? I, I actually feel that your body is overly stressed. And I explained to her how stress can also impact the gut. It can, you know, um, you know, having too much stress can absolutely cause holes to appear in our gut wall, you know, what we call leaky guts. We know that too much stress can alter the balance of gut bugs in, you know, in, in our intestine, in our large intestine. And I said, you know what, let's try something different. What I want you to do is have 15 minutes every morning or, or once a day where you do something for yourself, okay? And I said, I also want you to find one thing a week that you love, something that you really, really want to do. And she was so skeptical. She really was. She said, well, is that it? I said, I said, look, honestly, we made some dietary changes. You've hit a plateau. I honestly feel that stress is the lever to turn here now for you. And I, get, I wrote her out this, this prescription, this lifestyle prescription, if you will, on a, on a piece of paper. She went away. She came up four weeks later. I said, how did you get on? She goes, well, you know, just unbelievable. I, 
I, I would have I would drop the kids off to school and I'd go for a 15 minute walk as a routine straight after the school drop off. So that was a new thing for her. She also found that the thing that she wanted to do was join a salsa class. She'd not done that for years. And so she joined a local salsa class and went for about 90 minutes or so once a week. And, you know, at that review appointment, we did her MSQ again, her medical symptom questionnaire. And her score had come down by 50%. Wow. And the only change I made was her stress levels. And this is why I'm really, this, this is one of the reasons, David, I actually started the book with a relaxed pillar. Because I think many people who have followed my work in the past may have assumed that I would start off with food. But I thought, actually, you know what? I'm going to start with relaxation because stress is that thing that affects all of us. Because we can't really see it. We don't want to prioritize it. We don't think about it. And, and the whole book is about giving people simple, practical tools that they can use in their own life. And I know they work because these are the things that I've learned in 17 years of practice. These are what patients have come back to me and said, I, this works for me, this doesn't work for me. So I've literally put in every tip that I've ever picked up, I poured it into that book so there's something in it for everyone. Well, you know, aside from the photographs and the illustrations, um, it, it, you know, I mean, those contribute to a real readability of your book. And I, I like the fact that you open with uh, stress and you talk about the 15 minutes of me time. Uh, I think so many of us feel so dedicated to, as you mentioned, caring for uh, family members, uh, being parents, doing all the things we do, that we almost feel guilty for that 15 minutes of, as you call it, me time. Uh, but yet I think it's so important. And, you know, to lead in with stress, understanding that stress can compromise sleep, uh, can make you less likely to want to exercise, and can lead to making inappropriate food choices. So it really is a very, very good uh, launching point. I wanted to get back to um, the notion of this inflammatory bowel. And just to really, you know, characterize that is, I think it's a bit of a, myopic kind of a, a statement in recognizing, uh, you know, the myriad ways that that is actually a systemic a disease. Can you comment on some of the other things you see in conjunction with what we would routinely think of as just inflammation of the bowel? Yeah, you mean in terms of symptoms? Yeah, other things that are maybe extra intestinal. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we, we, we talk about something like inflammatory bowel disease as if it is a bowel problem. And yes, there is a huge amount of inflammation in our guts. But one of the themes that I always talk about in all of my work and throughout the book is that the body is interconnected. You know, you don't just get inflammation in the gut and it just stays in the gut. It affects all kinds of different organs around the body because when there's inflammation in the gut, lots of immune messengers that we call cytokines get triggered off and they they take that message of inflammation and they send it to different organ systems so i've got some patients with inflammatory bowel disease who've got mood issues there's depression there's anxiety because we know very clearly now that there is something called the gut brain axis you know these multiple communication pathways between our gut and our brain and i don't think we even know all of them yet i think we're probably going to learn more and more as the next few years develop but one of them is the vagus nerve. We know that that is one route that the gut can communicate with the brain and the brain can communicate with the gut. Um, we know that actually, depending on the health of your gut microbiome, you know, we can make the, the fiber that we eat, uh, those gut bugs will eat, they'll make short chain fatty acids and those short chain fatty acids can almost switch a light on in your brain by sort of connecting with the vagus nerve or they can go around in the bloodstream and get to the brain. Uh, we, know, we know there are multiple sources of that communication, so I see those sort of issues. I've seen patients with gut problems uh, and inflammatory bowel disease who've got joint pains, um, you know, because all these things are linked. I was actually, um, David, just at the weekend, I've, I've created a brand new course with a colleague of mine called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine, which is the first Royal College of GP accredited lifestyle medicine course here in the UK, and we ran it. Uh, for 200 doctors back in January, nearly 200 again this weekend in, in, in London. And there's this real thirst from uh, both GPs, general practitioners, but also consultant rheumatologists, psychiatrists, gastroenterologists. They're all coming to learn about these principles because, um, you know, because they haven't really, you know, none of them uh, have been taught them at medical school. And they're all starting to realize 
Actually, our tools can be a little bit limited for certain conditions. But the, the reason I bring this up, David, is because I remember one of the cases that I, um, one of the case studies that I was using to illustrate uh, this, the, this point about inflammation was a lady with type 2 diabetes, extremely overweight lady. Um, I think she was about 230 pounds. Um, she, her HbA1c was, I think it was 7.3. And so, you know, just... Um, in, in, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very well educated, but you know, five in the US, 5.7 I think to 6.5 is pre-diabetic, and above 6.5 is type 2 diabetes. Now, as well as her type 2 diabetes, she had joint pain, she was overweight, she had a low mood, she had all kinds of other problems, and the joint pain she'd been to see her doctor for for many years, and they'd always said this is osteoarthritis, you know, this is wear and tear on your joints. So we made some dietary changes with her about, you know, primarily around her type 2 diabetes, which was a diet very, very low in refined and processed carbohydrates, you know, rich in healthy natural fats. But I, I said to the audience, I said, guys, what's interesting? So she started this diet. Three days later, all her joint pain has gone. So why is that? And, you know, all kinds of people put their hands up and, you know, they, Again, we've not been taught this concept of inflammation. I was saying, guys, how, how has she lost this joint pain when she clearly hasn't lost enough weight in three days for this wear and tear joint pain to go? And, you know, these guys, this is nearly 200 doctors, they, they, were, they were confused by this. And I had to explain to them, guys, this is because what happened when she changed her diet, she went to an anti-inflammatory diet. And what was causing her joint pain was actually inflammation from her gut. And I see this, and I'm sure you do, David, as well, all the time when you actually start to switch people's diets and you know to switch them off from a diet that actually causes inflammation to a diet that helps to switch inflammation off, it's not just the blood sugar gets better, it's not just that the gut problems get better, even things like your skin or your joints get better. And I know that lady who I presented, you know, she's a she's a patient of mine from 2015. She's not had any joint pain at all for three years now. And it and it all went three days after she changed her diets. And I found that absolutely incredible. Well, I mean, I'm sure the criticism from your colleagues is, oh, that's an N of one. And, uh, you know, could there be a placebo effect? And it, it truly is not. I mean, for our viewers, I would refer back to the interview recently with Dr. Sarah Hallberg, who instituted a ketogenic diet uh, in individuals with type 2 diabetes. And just to recap, 96% of these individuals were able to discontinue or reduce their insulin, and 100% were able to stop their sulfonylurea class drugs. Average weight loss was 14% of body weight. And I mean, what you're saying is, is profound. Because uh, you know the common approach is that you will see the endocrinologist who will tinker with your blood sugar me uh, medications. You'll see the psychiatrist who's going to put you on an antidepressant. Uh, the neurologist because of your cognitive slowness. The rheumatologist because of your obvious joint pain. And maybe uh, a gastroenterologist or surgeon to get your stomach banded. And to me, it is very reminiscent of the story of the blind men feeling the elephant that you know, nobody comes to a consensus that this is an entire animal and they each are you know, referring only to their specific parts. And gee, <laughs> this notion of the body acting as an integrated whole has been how healthcare has been practiced since the dawn of, of time, for humans at least. And, and now we want to just segregate and really, again, it, I hate to use the word myopic, but I'm going to use it because it is very narrow visioned uh, in, in terms of how David, the body's it, looked at. It is, it is myopic because what, what's remarkable for me, David, is once, once you've opened your eyes up to this way of viewing the human body, you can't go back. That's you know, right. once you get it, you, you sort of look back and go, why did it take me this long to, yeah. to understand that? It's quite intuitive. And this is what all these other, you know, medicine has been around in various forms for thousands of years. And as you say, they've always looked at it in a rounded fashion. It's just us in the, you know, maybe the last hundred years in modern allopathic medicine that we started to get so reductionist. And I, and I get where that has come from. But I think, you know, we, we made some great strides in the 20th century by taking that reductionist view. 
But I think we've got to recognize now that really has had its limitations. And, you know, I'm, it doesn't matter what the condition, you mentioned an endocrinologist, you remind me of another case study in the book of a lady with menopausal symptoms, right? This is a lady who um, was scoring 15 out of 17 on the British Menopausal Society symptom questionnaire. That's a very, you know, a high severe score of symptoms. And her doctor had recommended that she go on hormone replacement therapy. Um, and she didn't want to do that for a variety of reasons. She didn't want to go down that road. And literally by applying this four pillar approach with her diet initially, but primarily with the relaxation pillar with things like um, 15 minutes of me time a day, five minutes of meditation, I'm not talking about 20, 30 minutes, just five minutes of meditation a day and some magnesium, right? She went down in six weeks from scoring 15 out of 17 to two out of 17 and her life was tolerable. And she could easily have been put on hormone replacement therapy and gone down that route. And again, I'm not necessarily criticizing her had she done that, but she didn't want to. So as a doctor, I need to hear her, what, what she would like to do. And it's just amazing that, you know, when we talk about diet and we talk about lifestyle, David, I don't know what it's like in the US, but here everyone talks about, oh, you know, type two diabetes and obesity. But Actually, lifestyle affects everything, menopausal symptoms. It can affect your joint pain depending on the cause. What about mental health problems? You know, our diet and our lifestyle has a profound impact on our mental health. And we've got some great studies now which are really supporting that actually diet and, and, and sleep absolutely prioritized with our mental health patients, including that SMILES trial. Did you see that from February 2017 in Australia? that randomized controlled trial showing that patients with moderate to severe depression, um, the group who went on a modified Mediterranean diet versus the group who went on a, I think a social support structure for 12 weeks had a statistically significant improvement in their, in remission. I mean, it's absolutely incredible and the evidence is overwhelming and it's incredibly frustrating for me that as a profession, we're not faster to embrace all the, all this new research. Well, that study was actually uh, founded on previous research, uh, supportive research that demonstrated much higher levels of LPS, I'll explain in a moment, uh, in major depressive disorder in comparison to those who do not. Uh, and what is LPS? Well, LPS is, uh, when it's found in the blood, is a marker of two things. It's a marker of gut permeability and it's a marker of inflammation because it, it stimulates inflammation. So what we're saying then is that depression is really rooted in this process, again, of inflammation and that this relationship to the gut as demonstrated by the higher level of LPS, which indicates gut leakiness, like you mentioned earlier, is in fact very real. And what you know mechanistically goes on when you go on a Mediterranean diet or other good diet that can help heal the gut lining is the LPS level goes down, inflammation goes down, uh, and it's good for the brain. So we see elevated LPS in autism, in Alzheimer's, in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and as I mentioned, in major depressive disorder. And it can come from nowhere else. It comes from the gut exclusively. So yeah. it really causes us to recognize, in, in this case, a connection then between the brain and the gut that's very, very real. Uh, yeah, but it's, it, it also tied to diabetes as well. Not up on. And I think our mission yeah. is to say, look, your our most well-respected literature is publishing this stuff, and why is it invisible to you? You should look at it. I mean, that's what your mission is. Yeah, absolutely. And even something like type two diabetes, there's some really good uh, mechanistic work has been shown that LPS might be a triggering one of the root triggers in the development of insulin resistance, exactly which then right. leads to type two diabetes. So. LPS is almost like the window to a whole variety of different diseases. And that's why in, in this sort of model of healthcare, we always talk about looking at the gut first. All right, let me just tell our viewers, LPS is something in the gut. It actually is the covering over certain bacteria called gram-negative bacteria that live in the gut. So we shouldn't really find it in the bloodstream. When we find it in the bloodstream, it got there somehow, and it means the gut is leaky. LPS is a powerful initiator of inflammation. So going back to what we just heard, uh, this relationship then to other things like depression, cognitive issues, etc., 
points back to the gut and i.e. the body as a holistic uh, whole. Um, you know, you talk about then early on disconnecting from all of these really powerful events that sort of rob us of our connection to who we are and our families, etc. The phone, the, the computers, the busy lives that we have. So disconnecting is very important, having that 15 minutes of me time. But you also, uh, in the book, talk about the importance of connective, connective uh, pursuits, being connected to people in our communities, being connected to family, being connected to other things. So what are some of the things that we should try to reconnect to? Yeah, well, one of the chapters, David, in my book is called Reclaim Your Dining Table. And Chapter 5. Chapter five, exactly, and it's one of the things that one of the things that led to this was as part of my experience on the, this BBC documentary series of going around the country and living with all these different families. One thing I realised is, or one thing I, I I noticed was that so many families around the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, don't sit around a table anymore and and eats. It's the sort of thing I wouldn't know in my clinic room because, you know, it, it may not come up. Even if it does come up, actually patients may not, you know, you, it, you would see it in a different way when you would literally be there day in, day out. And you see, guys, you, you, you aren't eating together. It was very common to see, you know, everyone eats separately. Somebody's watching television. Somebody's on a table, you know, sending uh, text messages. Somebody's scrolling social media while they're eating. And I was shocked at how common this is. And it was a common thing that I would ask these people to do. Was, Wait a minute, hey, can, you, can you hold on for just a minute? I just got a text. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I would encourage them to say, hey, can you for one meal a day sit around a table in company if possible? I appreciate not everyone lives with other people, but for those people, I sort of suggest, can you do it with your work colleagues at lunchtime? Just one meal a day in company without devices. And I can tell you the difference it made with all these families was absolutely profound. They not only would they eat less because actually they're they're, they're eating more. in a bit more yeah they're eating in a bit more of a mindful fashion, but they also started to say, you know what? I started talking to my wife more, and I, I learned more about her day and. Um, I, I found parents and their children would start to connect a little bit more. Uh, and and so there's, there's quite a lot of research now on the importance of eating sat down, you know, in company if possible. Uh, and I think this is this is incredibly valuable intervention for people to make. And, and, I, and I know all this stuff sounds a bit like this is quite soft medicine. You know, what's what's this MD doing talking to me about sitting around a dining table? I can tell you, I've seen firsthand this makes a difference. This makes it um, so important. It's, it's, it's something that because we've lost that connection in modern life, it's a simple way that we can get it back. And you know, 30, 40 years ago, every single household in the United Kingdom had a dining table, right? That was the norm. But now these things have been, you know, moved out, you know, rooms, walls have been knocked down to make room for big televisions and, you know, something that was, was a core part of human existence, you know, eating in company, that has just gone from society. And I think it's not, you know, it has multiple consequences for our health. The other thing I talk about in terms of this whole idea of connection is the importance of gratitude. And I think that's I think that's chapter three, and you know about how you can keep a, a gratitude journal each day, and I, I walk through the science on that. But the the game I play at home with my family every day that I'm home for dinner is a game I actually learned from the strength coach Charles Poliquin, and it goes like this: so we sit around a table, we're having a meal, okay, but then what we have to do is we each have to go around and say, okay, what did I do today to make somebody else happy? What did somebody else do today to make me happy? And what have I learned today? And I could tell you, David, my initial idea was that this is going to be really, really good for my children. You know, they're going to get a lot of benefit out of this. But I pretty soon learned that actually mommy and daddy also get a huge amount of benefit from that as well because we start to have that conversation. We learn something about our children, about my wife, something that I may not have picked up. And you know, it's just it's just a much warmer experience. We finish dinner time feeling really quite relaxed and connected. And the, as we highlighted at the start, David, yes, I'm passionate about nutrition. Yes, I'm passionate about the importance of movement. 
But let's not underestimate how important relaxation is and, and how we can sort of buffer all the stresses in the modern world. And, you know, one thing that people have fed back to me in the UK since this book has been out is that actually the recommendations I make feel very achievable for people. You know, I've really tried to set the bar low for people so that they actually feel inspired as they're reading the book to go, hey, you know what, I think I can do that. I'm, I'm going to try and do that tonight with my family. And so these are some of the so some of the recommendations I make, and and uh, you know you you've spoken about this on your on your social media channels before about how social isolation is you know is a health risk superior to smoking you know and in fact uh, in terms of its health consequence and so some of these recommendations I make are literally just you know to make some achievable small achievable changes that are going to help you feel more connected and less stressed. So I'll let our viewers know, uh, the cat out of the bag here, that our next, next, next book, so three books out, yeah, <laughs> is planning three uh, books dealing today. with wow. this notion of, of reconnecting, but in a, a physiological way, to the part of the brain that allows you to experience empathy and gratitude, and at the same time, distance ourselves from the egotistical, narcissistic part of the brain that constantly needs stimulation so that we can feel like we have enough. So that's what we're working on right now. That'll be probably late 2019. Um, that study that you, you just were alluding to of the 10,000 individuals who felt unconnected demonstrated that the risk of um, uh, illness was in fact triple the risk of smoking. So this notion of being unconnected I mean, I think the Blue Zones talked about that, that one of the, the biggest factors uh, that related to the health of individuals living in the various Blue Zones was, yes, they had great diets, and yes, they were physically active, but they were connected to their families and communities. Yeah, absolutely. And they were, you know, had low stress levels, and they've got good qualities of sleep. And that really is about the, the whole approach that I, I've tried to take here is really look at this rounded approach to health in terms of maybe it's not about looking for perfection in any one pillar it's about getting a balance across all four and i i do mention the blue zones in my book because i think you know we can learn a lot from those blue zones you know yes researchers have studied them to look for the perfect diet but i don't think that's it with the blue zones i think it's the combination of things no that they do about it. everybody's that's trying to emulate the diet in crete or wherever or, or wherever it was that they felt had you know, uh, Okinawa or wherever it was that they felt they had uh, great health. And but they, they forget about the other factors. Yeah, and, you know, here in the West, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're chronically underslept, we're overstressed, we don't move enough, we're eating a lot of sugary processed junk foods, and we're disconnected, okay? Uh, and then we try and compare, oh, you know, those 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 blue zones are eating this way um, yet we're not tackling the stress levels we're not tackling the lack of sleep and we're trying to make those sort of generalizations and actually i sort of speculate in the book that could it be you know because we, we talk about you know people are talking about carbs a lot these days and we look at those okinawan communities where they're having you know an 80 percent high carbohydrate diets and sort of kind of trying to figure out, well, how can that be that they can have such a high carb diet, certainly from the research I've read, yet not get type 2 diabetes, not have insulin resistance, not have Alzheimer's. And I, I sort of hypothesize that could it be in the context of A, the carbs that they're having are local, they're, they're what I call cellular carbs, they're very nourishing to the gut microbiome, they're not the acellular sort of grain type carbs that we know can spike blood sugar and can have, and some of them can have a detrimental impact on our, uh, on our, on our gut microbiome and our health. But I think it's something more than that. I think it's also the fact that actually, they're, they're they're drilled in on all the other pillars as well. So I often speculate that could it be what? Why does the low carb diet or what is called a low carb diet, the low in refined and processed carbohydrates? Why does that have such a powerful? <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. On so many patients in the Western world, and I think it's because, in the context of our environment, which is a lack of sleep, too much stress, not moving enough, 
in that context, it seems to have quite a powerful and unique no role. So again, you can't look at that in isolation. I'm often asked that question. Oh, they eat a lot of rice and how come they don't have these problems? Well, the reality is they are getting these problems now. If, if you look at what's happening cur currently versus looking back 20 years, which is where many of these statistics uh, are derived. Um, getting back to the sugar part, you talk about denormalizing sugar, which was a great, uh, great terminology. Um, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, sugar's become like the, the big villain around the world, right? It's, it's, uh, and I don't disagree with some of that, but I was thinking about this, you know, as humans, we've always craved you know, sugar or honey or sweet things, right? So I was thinking, well, what is it? What is it? What is going on that has made sugar the problem? And, or one of the problems. And I think it's the fact that it's become so normal. So that's why the chapter is called Denormalize Sugar, right? It's about saying, look, if you want a sugary treat now and again, right? Like they often do in the blue zones, right? For example, I'm not necessarily saying you shouldn't do that if that's what you want to do. But don't kid yourself that you're not having sugar every day with your breakfast cereal, with your sandwich for lunch, with your ready-made pasta for dinner. Don't kid yourself that actually you're not having sugar. And so the whole idea of denormalizing sugar is to help teach people to start looking at food ingredients, try and find out where sugar is lurking. And I don't mind, look, if you, if you, if you in the 21st century want to avoid sugar for the rest of your life, you can have a hard time, right? Because it's everywhere. And you are going to be tempted, uh, you know, everywhere you go. Once you step outside your front door, you're going to be tempted by it. Okay, I said, well, why not? Many people think it's okay to eat stevia, for example. What are your thoughts on stevia? Yeah, I, I'm not convinced, if I'm honest with you. I'm, you know, I don't, it's not something I've really covered in the book. I don't sort of, um, I don't positively recommend it. I'm sort of concerned with a lot of, with, with stevia, with various sweeteners. I'm concerned that there may be a, a negative impact on our gut microbiomes. Okay. And so I'm, I sort of, I, I, I've not really covered that in a great amount of detail in the book, but I don't particularly advise that with my patients, if I'm honest. Uh, you do mention agave. I do mention agave, yeah, I'm not, the point is, is that I'm not, pe people crave sweet things, right? So if they're used to having sugar day in, day out, okay, they think that, oh, you know, I need sugar, but often it's that they've just uh, trained their taste buds to need sugar. So, you know, when I used to drink, when I first started drinking tea, okay, I used to take two spoons of sugar in it, right? This is years ago. And then when I, when I gave it up, the first time I had it, it was disgusting, right? <laughs> I couldn't stand it. But then three weeks later, I was at work and I think I picked up the wrong one. And it was somebody else's that had sugar in it. I nearly spat it out. I couldn't stand it. And that's how quickly our taste buds um, can adapt. So I, I try to take a bit of uh, quite a moderate approach in the book to sort of say, hey, guys, look, I get it if you want a bit of sugar and you find it too hard to completely cut it out. So get it out of your house. Get it out of your cupboards. And that, that's a theme that I talk about throughout my approach and throughout this book is control the environment that you can control. Right? If you bring in those sugary treats to your house and you think you're not going to have them, you are kidding yourself because you can willpower it for a week, maybe for two weeks, but you will come back one day, you'll be stressed out, you'll be tired, and, and you, you will crack. And, and I remember, you know, just literally a few weeks ago, I came back from work, I was tired, I was stressed, I'd not slept well the night before, I was watching some, I can't remember what I was, I think I was watching something with my wife and I thought, I really fancy something sweet, really, really want something. And I started looking in the cupboards and there was nothing there. You know, there was nuts there, there was health foods. And you know what? I call this an itchy mouth. You know, so, so much of the time we actually think we're hungry or we're craving that something sweet. But if you ain't got it there, the feeling passes and it goes away. And so a big theme for me is control the environment that you can control. Because once you walk out your front door, it is very, very hard for, for many people to make those healthy choices. We're, uh, we're gonna close soon, but I wanna talk about, you know, everybody has kind of their um, unique uh, area of body that they like to exercise because they get a lot of bang for the buck in terms of uh, how good it is for them. We recently interviewed Dr. Frank Lippman and he was talking all about squats and you talk quite a bit about glutes, the importance of strengthening your glutes. I think you had some back issues 
yeah. uh, and you found that strengthening your glutes was very helpful for that. So why the emphasis on the glutes? And, and yeah, I, I'm great... telling you, I know there's no segue from sugar to glutes, but it is an interview. I love it. I love <laughs> I it. Quick fire. It's on to, on to glutes. So I, yeah, you're right. Uh, with many of these things, you know, our personal experiences start to dictate that the way that we practice. And so I had, you know, 10, 10 years of debilitating back pain. You know, I'm a tall guy. I'm, you know, six foot six and a half. Um, and you know, I used to be a competitive squash player, I had to give everything up. And I, I did what most people do. I went to physios, I went to the doctors, I went to the spinal surgeon, I had an MRI scan, I did all these things and, and nothing was helping. You know, I'd sometimes get a bit of short-term relief, but then the problem would come back. And then I found somebody called Gary Ward who, you know, really thinks about the musculoskeletal system in the same way that you or I would think about the human body. He's always looking, well, what's the root cause of this problem? Is the back problem really a back problem or is it is the back taking the strain because other parts of the body aren't functioning properly? And for me, it came down to my glutes. My right foot wasn't working properly and that had an impact up the chain to my right glutes. And as soon as I started to teach my glutes how to fire properly, my back pain just vanished, and I've seen the same thing with some of my patients. Not everyone, there's many different causes of backache. Have you been able to get back to squash? Yeah, I'm back playing squash, and back skiing moguls, and back to everything now. And I, I will even move furniture around my house, and my friends can't believe that, because back in my 20s, I would no way near go any of that, but I know that the root cause of my problem has been addressed. So I actually have no fear now that my back is going to go. But you, you, we, we started off the conversation you were chatting about when you were at Paleo FX and this whole mismatch of the, 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 the you know, the, the our, our genetic evolution world. What's the issue now? Because of the way we live our lives now, we're sat down a lot. We're slumped over on phones and computers and laptops. Okay, our brains are very smart our brains no longer need to switch our glute muscles on for much of for much of our day so it bypasses that the problem is when you bypass it it also means that when people try and get up and go and do glute exercises in the gym for example often they're not firing their glutes even though they're trying to and so i i created with gary these four key exercises that i do every day myself they take about three minutes. I do them every morning as my coffee is brewing for four minutes. I just knock out those four exercises um, that I've detailed in the book. And and there's a free video there on my website so people can watch it even without getting the book if they want to. But they're incredibly beneficial for people. And they help you. You can't actually do those exercises without switching your glutes on. They're designed in such a way that your glute has to fire whilst you're doing it. And I know for me, it really helps me feel that in the start, at the start of the day, you know, if you think about it, you know, would you build, um, you know, a Jenga sort of tower on shaky foundations? Would you build Lego on shaky foundations? No, you wouldn't. But yet our glutes are, you know, a foundational, they're, they're what I call a cornerstone muscle in our body. If our glutes are off, many other things start going off. And so I like to start the day with a very quick two, three-minute workouts where, yeah, I wouldn't even call it a workout. It's just a series of movements to fire up my glutes. And I find that I move a lot better throughout the day. And I can tell you, David, that people who bought the book in the UK, so many people are tweeting me or on Instagram, they're getting hold of me saying, oh, my God, this is really <laughs> helping me get rid of my back pain. And, you know, as you know, you've written multiple books, David. I'm a huge fan of your books. This is the first book for me, and it's just an incredible feeling as an author to get feedback from people that something that you've written, they are finding so incredibly useful for a whole variety of different problems. And you know, I feel very, very lucky. You know, it's a very, uh, it's a feeling of gratitude that uh, you would get these uh, emails or people are posting on social media that they learned something from your book and it was life-changing for them. In this case, you know, whether it's a diet change or strengthening and mobilizing their glutes, uh, I would say for me, the back pain was coming from the piriformis muscle. And sure. I just went on YouTube and looked at piriformis, which is spelled P-Y, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Piriformis muscle and um, stretched out my piriformis and my back pain for years that I had had that kept me from playing racquetball uh, went away. And it was, you know, sometimes it's just 
the dynamics of your movement, especially for me as a runner, that contributes to these subtle Absolutely. imbalances, like you say, that, uh, yeah. you know, it's and that, like that, that's just Jenga. one, su it's one suggestion, you know, that I make. And, you know, one point before we close out is would, would, would just sort of like to say, clarify, I think what's, um, what, what the approach I've taken in my book, How to Make Disease Disappear, is, is that there's four key areas of health that we have control over that have the most impact on the way that we feel. And in each pillar, I've given people five, there's five chapters, and each chapter is a recommendation, not a prescription. You know, I'm not telling people what to do. I'm making suggestions for them. And I, I'm not expecting people to do all 20. I say very openly, most of my patients need to do about three in each pillar, roughly, which is a total score of 12. And I'm trying to give people options. So if there's a chapter in there, right, a recommendation that people don't like, you know what? Don't do it. I'm good with that. You know, choose a chapter that you do like that actually you feel motivated and inspired to think, yeah, I can fit that in in the context of my, my own life. And I, I think that's the... That's the approach I'm taking more and more now in my clinic with my patients. That's the approach I've taken in the book. And I'm, I'm, I'm finding that a lot of people are really resonating with it because it's taking the pressure off. They don't have to be perfect in any one pillar. They just need to choose a couple, two or three in each one that they can build into their life. Yeah, and that's very encouraging for people to want to do more. And, you know, even in terms of exercise, you know, I wouldn't insist that uh, an individual immediately go out and walk a mile. Uh, or if the, you know if they couldn't do that, well, a half a mile, you can't do that. Look, go out your front door, walk to the mailbox, and come back. That's where we'll start. But uh, I think that you know, getting making progress and feeling encouraged by implementing any of your suggestions will amplify the desire to really flesh out the program. Yeah, absolutely. And one of one of my favorites on that is I've got something called a five minute kitchen workout, which is a strength workout and. That came, literally came about from my patients who I would talk to them about sarcopenia and strength and how important it is. And I'd say, you know, we need to really work on resistance training. And they'd come back four weeks later. I said, you know, how's it, how's it going? Did you manage to get to the gym? Oh, you know, doc, work's too busy. I can't afford the gym. It's not my way back from work. And I thought, okay, you know what? As a doctor, I need to come up with better advice. I need to come up with advice that actually they feel is relevant and applicable in their lifestyle. And in that moment was born this five minute kitchen workout that I, you know, I've got 20 year old patients doing it. I've got 70 year old patients doing it. And I say, guys, I just want from you five minutes twice a week. Can you give me that? And they all say yes. And what happens is because they start doing it and they feel good, suddenly those five minutes twice a week becomes 10 minutes six times a week very, very quickly. So from doing zero strength training Within weeks, they're already up to an hour strength training. It's just by it's just by trying to personalize the recommendations for those individuals. I'm I'm not against the gym. If you love going to the gym, that's great. But many people just won't go, or they can't afford it. And I'm saying you can do a great strength workout in your kitchen without spending any money, without buying any equipment. You could do it in your own clothes without even getting changed. It's trying to just lower that bar to entry. And, and one thing I'm really proud of, David, is that pretty much every single recommendation in this book is free, right? The only one you can have the, an argument with me on or a discussion is, is it easy to eat an unprocessed diet in the 21st century or is it, is it more expensive to? And, you know, I would argue that actually it can be done uh, on a budget, but certainly the other 19 recommendations, there is, you know, they're all free of charge. So that means they're accessible and available to a CEO of a top company and they but just as applicable to a single mother who's on benefits they can all apply these principles and that was one of my guiding thoughts throughout this book was how can I make health accessible for every single person who reads this book and certainly I, I hope I've gone some way in achieving that I, certainly well, I think so. you have and I think that all of our viewers will um, have appreciated your passion and your compassion uh, and, uh, you know, I think that it comes from, at, at its core, a sense of gratitude and doing your best to give back. And, you know, the word doctor means teacher. So as the teacher you are now, writing books and doing television, you're really getting a very, very important message out to, you know, people that you'll never have contact with. And yet, uh, you know, rest assured, you're making a big change. So I commend you for that. Thank you, David. Great. Well, I'm hoping we meet someday. I'm sure we will. And uh, thanks for being on the program today.
David, thank you very much for having me, and uh, it's been a huge pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Bye for now. What an interesting interview. Again, uh, just really emphasizing uh, the importance of our day-to-day -day choices, you know, getting us away from the notion of live your life, come what may, eat whatever you want, maybe you exercise, maybe you don't, and hopefully uh, there's going to be some magic pill around the corner to help you with whatever medical problem you develop. We know uh, that is not, uh, you know, an appropriate course of action for you if you're trying to stay healthy. Again, what a terrific book, How to Make Disease Disappear, and I would add to that uh, how to prevent those diseases in the first place by implementing Dr. Chatterjee's recommendations. Really glad you could join with us uh, today on The Empowering Neurologist. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. We will see you soon. Bye for now.